Ladies and gentlemen, we are bringing to you the most important story of this century. This is Radio Moscow. Our satellite Sputnik entered orbit around the Earth. The United States is in a state of admiration, confusion, and surprise. The beginning of the space age. It is the same as Christopher Columbus discovering America. You just entered the new world without real understanding of the consequences. Sputnik is a frightening toy in the hands of childlike men who are without morals. Can this satellite be turned into some kind of a dangerous weapon? I would urge individuals to build shoulders and build them right now. The Russian satellite has proved the second coming of Christ is at hand. Coexistence to a communist means nothing. How we meet the communist challenge depends on you. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to Episode 10 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, the Space Age. On October 4, 1957, the Soviet Union demonstrated that it had to be taken seriously. Only a few years prior, they had lagged the U.S. badly in both bombers and nuclear weapons. Now there was a deep concern that the Soviets could launch a nuclear attack on the U.S. with their new R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. The news of the launch in the world's leading newspapers got second coming treatment. The New York Times received the story in the late afternoon of Friday, October 4th. The next morning, they printed the article with rarely used three-line headlines in half-inch capital letters running the full length across the front page. It read as follows, Soviet fires Earth satellite into space. It is circling the globe at 18,000 miles per hour. Sphere tracked in four crossings over U.S. Newsweek ran two special sections on Sputnik. Here's an excerpt. Quote, This achievement had been reached in a torn world by the controlled scientists of a despotic state, a state which had already given the word satellite the implication of ruthless servitude. Could the crusher of Hungary be trusted with this kind of satellite, whose implications no man could measure? End quote. Even Life magazine ran an article. It was titled, The Satellite, Why the Reds Got It First and What Happens Next. On October 6, CBS ran a special report on Sputnik. Here are some excerpts. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1, the Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Moscow has not been passing up its opportunities, as CBS News correspondent Dan Shore observes in a recorded report from Moscow. Although the main Soviet papers today devote more than half their space to the satellite, with front-page banner headlines such as rarely seen in this country, there are precious few scientific details being divulged. The headlines are about glorious victory of Soviet science, or, as the communist youth paper says in a banner, the first in the world is ours. The stress is on exploiting the satellite as a political and propaganda triumph. A Pravda editorial says, 
No social system is so interested in developing science as the socialist system. Our scientists have achieved outstanding results with the effective support of the Communist Party and Soviet government. Other world news organizations had similar stories. Then the interpretation began. It only took the Manchester Guardian three days to begin to speculate apocalyptically on what the Russians might do next. On October 7th, an editorial was published titled, quote, Next Stop Mars? With a question mark. Here's an excerpt from that editorial. Quote, The achievement is immense. It demands a psychological adjustment on our part towards Soviet society, Soviet military capabilities, and perhaps most of all to the relationship of the world with what is beyond. Some of the editorial speculation about the future was very accurate. For instance, it said, quote, We must be prepared to be told what the other side of the moon looks like. This was revealed by the Soviet Lunik 3 when it produced photos of the dark side of the moon only two years later. Another prediction about the termination of how thick the clouds were on Venus would be fulfilled by the Soviet Venera and the U.S. Mariner series starting in the 1960s. The French reaction was equally excited. Le Figaro ran a story called Myth Has Become Reality, Earth's Gravity Conquered. The story went on to mock the U.S. saying that Americans have had little experience with humiliation in the technical domain. Many news reports at the time pointed out that anyone possessing a shortwave receiver could hear the new Russian Earth satellite as it hurtles over his area of the world. Directions provided by the American Radio Relay League were to, quote, tune in 20 megacycles sharply by the time signals given on that frequency, then tune to slightly higher frequencies. The beep-beep sound of the satellite can be heard each time it rounds the globe, end quote. The first recording of Sputnik 1 was made by RCA engineers near Riverhead, Long Island. They then drove the tape recording into Manhattan for broadcast to the public over NBC radio. However, as Sputnik rose higher over the East Coast, its signal was picked up by a ham station at Columbia University. Students working in the university's FM station, WKCR, made a tape of this and were the first to rebroadcast the Sputnik 1 signal to the American public. Now let's talk about the politics. In addition to survival, the U.S. had political concerns as well. First was the perception of unaligned nations. At that time, about one-third of the world's countries were unaligned with capitalism or communism. The fear was unaligned countries might see the success of Sputnik as merit in the communist system. The second concern was the fear that America's freedom and democracy might work in times of general peace but would lose out to the discipline of a dictatorship in the crunch. The third concern was the U.S. worried that their capitalistic consumer-oriented society 
might be perceived as weak. The final concern was that third world countries might perceive America as weak. Newly independent third world nations did not like Western democracy. They frequently preferred one-party regimes similar to the Soviet Union. They considered capitalism to be exploitation. They believed the future would favor socialism. These nations would take heed of the U.S., but only because they thought it was winning. But if they became convinced that Moscow was winning, they might favor communism. Here's another excerpt from the CBS News special report we heard before. This excerpt will explain some of the political ramifications. There's a report by Howard Smith on some of these current vibrations in Washington. Well, there's very profound concern here, Doug, about world opinion. The dominant conflict of our time, the Cold War, is at present, as everyone knows, in a state of balance between Russia and the West, and in between are those people who are called uncommitted, who may determine who wins, the peoples of Asia, the Near East, and Africa. Russia already enjoys one great attraction for these important peoples, and their ambition is to pull themselves up from primitive agrarian countries to become modern industrial nations. They tend to admire Russia as a nation which was once as backward as they, but which did pull herself up. And now that backward Russia has beaten the West's most advanced nation into the fringes of outer space, their admiration for Russia can be expected to increase. And there may be another consequence. Russia has in recent months been threatening nations who grant bases to America. Those threats have not been taken very seriously, but now the world knows that it took a far more powerful projectile than America possesses to push that satellite into its orbit in space. In view of that, Russia's threats may be more effective from now on. Probably no one here in the nation's capital would disagree with one thing that Senator Wiley said. We had better get on our toes. In the U.S. Congress, the Democrats, led by Lyndon Johnson, accused President Eisenhower of not spending enough money on national defense in favor of balancing the budget. Senator Stuart Smymington demanded a special session of Congress and warned that, quote, unless our defense policies are promptly changed, the Soviets will move from superiority to supremacy, end quote. There was a special session of Congress called, and it began in November of 57 and lasted well into 1958. Senator Henry Jackson called for the nation to observe a, quote, week of shame and danger, end quote. Senator Stiles Bridges, a leading Republican, said the U.S. needs, quote, to be less concerned with the depth of pile on the new broadloom rug or the height of the tail fin on the new car and be more prepared to shed blood, sweat, and tears. Here's what the Speaker of the House, Sam Rayburn, had to say. The people of the United States have been humiliated they're disturbed, and they're unhappy. The Democratic majority whip, Hubert H. Humphrey, said the U.S. had taken a licking scientifically and psychologically. Here's the audio. We surely don't want to become hysterical, but let's become factual. Let's start telling the truth. And let's face the fact that we've taken a licking psychologically at least and scientifically, and it has embarrassed us throughout the world. Presidential candidate Adelaide Stevenson was concerned about our pride and security. Listen to this. Not just our pride, but 
and our security is at stake. And finally, General Jimmy Doolittle warned about Soviet domination. If Russia wins dominance of this completely new area, well, I think the consequences are fairly plain. Probable Soviet world domination. Okay, let's move on to the religious effects. Believe it or not, there were some religious effects to Sputnik's launch. Some believe Sputnik heralded the second coming of Christ. The New York Times certainly treated it as such. A Middle Tennessee pastor delivered a sermon reassuring his congregation that the communists were doomed in their effort to control the heavens because they were godless. The pastor's message seems prophetic now after the dissolution of the Soviet Union on December 26, 1991. There were educational outcomes as well. As a result of Sputnik, the U.S. educational system was overhauled to put more emphasis on math and science. Education programs were initiated to foster a new generation of engineers. And now, how did the average person feel about Sputnik? The average U.S. citizen's reaction was admiration of accomplishment shock that the Soviets had this capability, and fear that the Soviets were capable of launching nuclear missiles at us. Here are some clips of interviews taken off the street. Russia's getting into space really bothers me. Because the American people alarmed that a foreign country, especially an enemy country, can do this. If we fear this. We fear that they have something out that the majority of the people don't know about. We should find out what they're doing that we're not doing. Okay, let's move on to America's space community. The American space community reacted with shock, ruefulness, and determination. Even though the Soviets' plan for launching a satellite was well known in the U.S., and not only to government insiders, the facts that they had accomplished it was a shock to space professionals. The American Rocket Society's magazine, Astronautica, reminded its readers that, quote, a little over two years ago when the government's guided missile policy committee decided against the von Braun satellite proposal in favor of Project Vanguard, there were four dissenters who voted to send the idea on to the National Security Council for further consideration. One of them was the Lone Eagle Charles A. Lindbergh, the last one to make aviation headlines of the same magnitude as Sputnik, end quote. An added editorial in Astronomics illustrates the determination of American rocketeers. It said, The Russians must not be allowed to win this game, a game far-reaching political, social, and economic consequences. Another article presented the technical aspect of Sputnik. Quote, the success of the Russian Sputnik was convincing and dramatic proof to people around the world of the real prospects of space travel in the not-too-distant future. The fact that a 23-inch sphere weighing 184 pounds can be placed in an almost precise circular orbit indicates that the number of important technological problems, such as high-thrust rocket engines, lightweight missile structures, and accurate guidance, stable audio control, and large-scale launching methods have been solved, at least to the degree 
required for the satellite project, end quote. And now I save the best for last, the American Space Program reaction. On the evening of October 4, 1957, Army Ballistic Missile Agency officials, including Major General J.B. Medeiros and Werner von Braun, were busy entertaining Secretary of Defense-designate Neil McElroy at the Redstone Arsenal. Suddenly, General Medeiros' public affairs officer rushed in and interrupted the party. He told the general, It's just been announced over the radio the Russians have put up a successful satellite. Von Brahm's pent-up emotions spilled out, and he said, We knew they were going to do it. Vanguard will never make it. We have the hardware on the shelf. For God's sake, turn us loose and let us do something. We can put up a satellite in 60 days, Mr. McElroy. Just give us the green light and 60 days. A cautious General Medeiros interrupted and said, No, Werner, 90 days. They presented McElroy with a formal briefing the next morning. McElroy refused to make an immediate commitment, but General Medeiros told von Braun to begin preparation as if he had formal directive to proceed. Once again, General Medeiros was thinking ahead and was willing to stick his neck out. You may remember from Episode 8, titled Redstone, General Medeiros was the one who ordered von Braun to store several Jupiter-C rockets so that they could be quickly accessed in case the Navy's Vanguard project had a problem. Army Secretary Wilbur M. Buckner quickly submitted a proposal requesting that the ABMA be allowed to prepare six Jupiter-C vehicles for the launching of six instrumented satellites. Bruckner asked for $12,752,000 in non-military funds and estimated the first satellite could be launched four months from the date of authorization. Medeiros, von Braun, and William Pickering, director of JPL, subsequently began a series of discussions on the best way to develop a suitable satellite for the Jupiter-C. On October 8, 1957, just four days after Sputnik, the Soviet Union detonated a 20-megaton hydrogen bomb. Here is the English translation of the Soviet announcement of the detonation. We proudly announce today that we have successfully detonated a 20-megaton hydrogen bomb. This is of a weight that our current rocket can carry anywhere. Our Sputnik proves to the world that we have the first ICBM. On October 9th, President Eisenhower held a special press conference to calm the fears that the Soviet Union possessed ballistic missiles that could threaten the U.S. The president relied on his military experience and the photos shot from the U-2 spy plane. He said the Soviet Union's achievement did not raise his apprehension one iota. All they did was put one small ball in the air. Eisenhower announced that Project Vanguard would attempt the launching of a satellite before the close of 1957. This presented a problem for the Project Vanguard managers. They had not planned to launch an instrumented satellite until early 1958. They had only planned test launches through the close of 57. While the first test launch of a Vanguard rocket with operational upper stages had indeed been planned for late 1957, the rocket would only carry a grapefruit-sized tracking satellite. 
Orbiting of this small tracking satellite on the first attempt using a yet untested rocket was viewed by insiders as having a high risk of failure. On October 31st, at the request of Secretary of Defense Neil McElroy, President Eisenhower agreed that von Braun and General Medeiros' ABMA program produce a satellite that could be officially considered as a backup to Project Vanguard. Of course, von Braun was already proceeding with that plan. In conclusion, for three weeks the world could hear the beeping of Sputnik 1 until its radio fell. It orbited more than 1,400 times and burned up in the atmosphere on January 4, 1958. Much has been written about the effect of Sputnik 1's launch on the world scene. Many American space enthusiasts, stricken with gloom at the time, now reflect that it might have been the best thing that could have happened to awaken the need for an aggressive space program. Only four years later, President Kennedy would call for what became the Apollo program, an enormous infrastructure of space research and development centers, test and launch facilities, and supporting industry and university programs would come into being. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.